Well, amen, amen. Let's thank Amari one more time for leading us today. I pray that um, with certain lyrics that we never grow old of, I pray that we never grow tired and weary of hearing the fact that Jesus was crucified for us. I pray that we never grow tired to know that the reason our story is is because he first did. And um, that we hear those and every time our hearts leap because of the great sacrifice that Jesus paid for us. So before uh, Linnea comes up, um, I'd like for you to join me just in... Uh, reading scripture. And so if you have your Bibles or your devices, open them up to uh, the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to read it in its entirety, uh, which is just about 13 verses. Um, And I believe it'll be available for you on the screen. 2 Samuel 9, beginning at verse 1. This is what it reads. David asked, is there anyone still left, you can read with me, of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. Y'all couldn't pronounce all those words. I heard y'all get quiet. It's all right. It's all right. Verse 5. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makir, son of Amiel, when uh-huh, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. He bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Amen. We all do me a favor. We all welcome. We call her the Reverend Mother to the stage. Linnea, will you come forward? Let's give her a hand as she comes forth.
see if I can make that work. Wow, it's good. It's really good to be here. <laughs> um, well, preaching is just one of those things. Sharing God's word with people is just an amazing gift. So it's a gift to be here. Now, I'm very happy. I'm very happy because I'm a Chicago native. And the Cubs are going to the World Series. Yes! That's the good news, right? <laughs> There's a lot of that other bad news out there, but that's the good news. And that was in all the headlines today, so I was, I was not afraid to read the news today. Okay? That, that, that's good news. There's a lot of bad stuff in the world, but that's good, um, at least for us Chicago folk. I'm not sure. Why is that guy coming on a Saturday? Those people from Calumet City, come on. That's World Series time, you know. Anyway. It is, uh, the other thing, I, I don't, I, I know it's not nice to bring uh, a text that has words like Mephibosheth, <laughs> okay? Just try saying it five times in a row, real quickly, okay? It's not easy. And it's like the other word that is my favorite word, which is obstreperous. And I say that and people say, what? Th these are educated people. They look at me like, what foreign word is that? And I said, go look it up in the dictionary. Oh, how do you even spell that word? And it's like, just look it up. Because all it means is really unruly. And I did preach a sermon about Jesus being obstreperous. And one teenager said, I'll remember that one. Because we as teenagers are almost always obstreperous. I, d I saw little Laura, and I don't know whose child she is, adorable, but first she was out to play the guitar, and then she was out to go work the sound, and then she was, and it was like, that's an obstreperous child, okay? <laughs> and in many ways, you and I are obstreperous, because we're following Jesus, and he did a lot of things that weren't in the rule book. He broke the rules so he could honor God. And that's a lot of what we're talking about today with Mephibosheth. Um, we got a couple of weeks of uh, bad news left before elections, and then maybe things will settle down a little bit. And I, I never preach on politics, absolutely never, never, never. So I'm not doing that. But in a couple of weeks, we're going to elect a new president. One or the other is going to get elected. And um, that's a point in which a lot of things do change because the president gets to start making decisions for who, are gonna, who these people are going to be in cabinets and this and that and who's going to work with him or her, and that's, that's just the way it is. They start making choices about who's going to be with them. Um, because that's, that's their job. It's, it's any new CEO has the same responsibility. You come in and you get to start making choices about who do you want to work with. And that's okay unless you're one that was in and now is out, who's out of a job. Um, but at least it's just a job. And I say that because back in the days of King David, which was about 1,000 B.C., more or less, um, things were politically a little bit different. 
And when the new king would come into power, pretty much everybody who had been serving the previous king would leave quickly or find themselves dead. Because you didn't leave people around you that were going to cause trouble. You got rid of them. So you left and went into exile real quickly, or you were no longer. That's the way it was. I'm glad that's not our system. But it was, it was just one of those things where, you know, that's the way life was. So we looked at, you, you read the text from 2 Samuel 9. And that's the story of Mephibosheth, who was King Saul's grandson. And King Saul had been anointed by God. And um, he was the king of Israel until he kind of decided not to follow God's rules quite so much and fell out of favor with God. And David was anointed. But it took years, years of being at war with Saul before David really came to power. There was the day when Saul and his son Jonathan had gone into battle and both were killed. And immediately, the whole household that was under Saul and Jonathan left town. But in their hurry, they took this young child, Mephibosheth, and in rushing to get him into exile and into a safe place, someone dropped him. And from that moment on, his feet were lame. That changed his whole life. Several times in this text it says, and he was lame in both feet. He was crippled in both feet. Now they knew what could happen if David found Mephibosheth because he was a potential enemy of this king. So we read in, in chapter 8 that David is now the king of Israel. He has subdued all the other kingdoms, all the other kings, everybody around him. He is now fully in charge. In 2 Samuel 9 begins, David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's, Jonathan's sake? Now, the assumption is that you're going to destroy anyone in Saul and Jonathan's family. But David had a special relationship. He and Jonathan were best friends. And because of their love for one another, he had promised Jonathan that he would always show his family, always show his family the faithful love of God. And if Jonathan were to die, David would continue to show his family God's faithful love. And David promised, and he would keep his promise. Think about Mephibosheth for a moment. Here's a person lame from very early childhood. He grows up. He's lost the use of his feet. 
but he's also lost just about everything else. He has no place in society. He's in hiding. He's never going to be king at this point. He's crippled. He's never going to have the same respect, the same honor from people in society. You know how they treat people with disabilities. Interesting word is the word invalid. Spelled the same way as the word invalid. I think about that and I think that invalids basically become invalid in our eyes because they have a disability. Not their own fault, but they have it. That's my aside, one of many. Anyway, he's, um, he's lost so much. He's lost his sense of safety. He's lost his home. He's lost his sense of you know, who he is, who he was born to be. He went from being the, the grandson of the king to being an orphan and an exile. Not a good place to be. So when Mephibosheth was summoned to King David's palace, he was terrified. I mean, what was the king going to ask of him? What was, what was really going to happen here? Was he going to die? Was that the end of his life? I mean, why would the king invite him to the palace? So, of course, when, when David says, I want to show you kindness. I'm not going to kill you. I want to be good to you. After all those years of, of living in, in hiding, uh, of, of being really a nobody, because nobody knew where he was and nobody knew that he really even existed any longer, his Mephibosheth's family was given back all the property from King Saul's estate. He was given back all the treasures, all the inheritance, and now he was going to live in the king's palace again. And it says twice, and he always ate at the king's table. Always ate at the king's table. Ziba, Ziba was going to care for all this land. He had children and servants, and, and they were going to farm it all, and all that produce was going to help feed the family and, and, and all the related family. And, but Mephibosheth would always eat at the king's table. But is it any wonder that Mephibosheth would exclaim, basically, should the king, why should the king show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Once he'd been royalty, now he was nobody. Once he'd been rich, he's suddenly poor. Once he'd been able to walk, and now he can't walk. He had lived in a palace. Now he was in exile. From now on, he would eat at the king's table. That's an unexpected gift. It's an amazing gift. 
You know, you have to wonder, what makes a guy do something like that? David's decision wasn't one just out of convenience. He didn't do it so he'd look good in the polls. He didn't do it because he was just a nice guy. He didn't do it for what he was going to get out of it. But David was really a person who tried to do what God wanted him to do. So David went out of his way for years to honor Saul. Could have killed him over and over again and never did because it was God's anointed king. He always honored Saul. And he had promised to, all, to always honor Saul's son's family. David's actions really demonstrated a rather rare trait in that day and on our day. That would be one of integrity. Integrity. Integrity, by definition, says it's a determination to act rightly beyond the sheer rightness of the act. David did what was right in the eyes of God. Think, think about this story. Because I think, in, and for me, and I'm sure for many of you, the story of Mephibosheth is your story. It's my story. Do you know the pain of, the pain, the shame, the feelings of loss? Loss of personal identity? Loss of health? Loss of being able to do the things you love to do and be the person you love to be. You're living in fear of what's next. Are you going to make it to the next day or next week? You all have a story. And th this is the point where if we had time, I'd go around and say, tell me your story. Because we all have a story about how we've had to go through those moments when we are left feeling like we're less than what we were before. Brief aside on my, my own life is I was given up for adoption at birth. Don't know that I ever, there was an old father listed. I'm, I was put in an orphanage and put in a foster home and the only thing I think that they found out was there was some neglect and abuse. Those kinds of things have an impact on you. It leaves you feeling inadequate, like nobody really wanted me. Do you ever feel like that? Nobody wants me. Nobody cares about me anymore. Those kinds of things grow in us until we say, uh-uh, that's not who I am. I was sharing with Rochelle that it wasn't until I was 45 until I went to seminary. It took God that long to work on me and figure that, get me to realize that I was somebody that I hadn't realized I was. Oh, I knew God, believe me. God was my father. But that whole sense of what I could do for God be a pastor? No way. Ask my husband. He'll tell you. 
absolutely not, because I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm never going to be good enough to be a pastor. And none of you are either, even in Jamel and Matt. But you know what? God called us anyway. And God could call you and say, I have a task for you that only you can do because you're special. And this is who you are in my eyes. You see, who Mephibosheth was then before he came back to the palace is not who he really was. He is royalty. So let me share you a few words from Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 13 with you, because they remind us of who we were and who we are. He says, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcised, that's all of us, basically, unless you were born Jewish, um, you uh, and call themselves the, the, are by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by the, in the body by human hands. Remember that at t- that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Once we were considered unworthy, worthless because of our race, because of our lack or education, because of our financial status, because of our gender, because of our age, because we just weren't good enough in the eyes of others. Once we were thought to be worthless because we had some physical or mental limitation. That's that's a story right there. I have to tell this little story, okay? Just a a little one. I I served the church in in Chicago that that became a church of two-thirds of it were first-generation immigrants. I didn't plan it. God did it, okay? But it wasn't just immigrants. It was people all kinds of people. And there was a woman who walked in one Sunday, and she was big, and she was loud, and she couldn't talk soft, and she never smiled. And I'd, I'd greet her every Sunday. I'd say, good morning, good morning, and she'd, mm-hmm, and she'd walk into church. And this went on for several months. Finally, she smiled one day. <laughs> And she realized that we weren't going to throw her out. She had physical limitations. She had mental limitations. And we loved her anyway. And we found a purpose for her, and we found ways that she could truly serve. But in most churches, she'd been thrown out. She talked too loud. She had outbursts but we loved her. Once we were outcast simply because of our past, once we were not followers of Jesus, we were enemies of God. And once we were without hope and without God in this world. And there's nothing we can do to change that status. Not when we're exiles not when we're cut off from God. We're like dead dogs, worthless, of no account, 
totally unworthy of God's kindness and God's love. And that's the way the world sees us. But the good news is Jesus came. And he came to heal us. He came to forgive us. He came to love us. He came to offer grace. Something we don't deserve. Something we don't, we don't often get. Jesus came so that you and I could be back in the family. That our identity in Christ could be restored. God invites us. We don't deserve it. Believe me, none of us deserve it. But God is invited. And because of Jesus, we've been invited back to our rightful place in the family of God. Our inheritance has been restored. What makes God do something like that to a bunch of people who are worthless. Real simple, isn't it? God loves us. And he's always going to love us. No matter what happens, no matter what we do, God is going to love us, right? I thought I would get an amen from somebody, right? (laughs) Come on, I'm not used to such a quiet crowd. (laughs) You're right. God loves us. Paul wrote, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved. Praise God for grace because grace is the one thing that makes us a family. It's the one thing that we have in common regardless of anything else in our lives. We have grace. And that's the reason we're here today is because we have been given extended grace, love, forgiveness, and a welcome back into the family. And I read that and I I just try to get that really deep within. And then I look at how I treat people. I look at the way other Christians treat other Christians and I think, who in the world do we think we are? Why in the world do we think we can look at another Christian and say, well, you don't measure up to my standard? Why do we dare say to anyone, you don't belong at my table? First of all, it's not my table. It's not our table. It's God's table. And second, none of us can earn a right at that table. None of us are worthy enough to come to that table. So apart from God's grace, we would not be here. Table is for the family. Table is for God's family. All of his children are invited. Jesus gave his life as an act of sacrificial love for all of us. Everyone who believes in him. Jesus made it possible for us to be at peace with God. 
Let me read a couple more verses from Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 16. This is from New Living. So it may be a little different. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. The wall of hostility, the barrier of hatred that had existed for so long was destroyed. It was torn down. And Galatians 3.28 says this so well. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female. You are all one in Christ. And yet we're still rebuilding walls between Christians between people of God that look like this and people of God who look like this and people of God who look like that. And I know that feeling so well because I saw it in the church that I served where, well, but they're Chinese, I'm sorry. They're Indian, they're Pakistani, they're Korean, they're Japanese, and none of those people really get along, you know. And yet they did, because the wall is down for them. I can't do that. God can. So I want God to win on this. I want to see the church as it's meant to be. I want to see the kingdom of God where everyone sits at the table with him. I got to tell a story. This is a story someone, another pastor told, and it, it was about a a new student at the University of Chicago. Now, that's a very prestigious place, okay? And it's a, it's a really high-powered school, and everybody pays huge amounts of money to go there. Um, but the neighborhood is not necessarily the greatest. So this young man was walking on the street, going to classes the very first day, and he paps, passed this apartment building, and there was an African-American man standing in the doorway, sitting in the doorway, and he was kind of shabby looking. He wasn't, you know, all that spiffy. And, and um, this man in the doorway says, good morning, son. Well, the student didn't know what to do. He was kind of shocked because, I mean, this guy didn't look all that great, and he was, so he kind of put his head down and just kind of walked on by as though he hadn't heard him. And a few feet away, he heard this man say, I'm the least of these. He said, wow, that's kind of a strange name. And he walked on. Next day, he came down the same street. Here's that same man sitting in that doorway. So we went to the other side of the street. <laughs> the guy says, come on over here. Come on over here. Well, I couldn't ignore him again. So he walked over, and he says, I, I think your name is Delistides? And the guy laughed, and he said, no, my name's Albert. But yesterday, I quoted the Bible. 
whatever you do for the least of these. One of my brothers and sisters. You see, and the man said, I just wanted you to know I'm your brother. And they both laughed and they talked and they got acquainted. Well, this, this new student ended up finally graduating and going to work and became the president of a college in, in uh, North Carolina. But he said the one thing he remembered that Albert helped him see that we would find Jesus Christ around us in all the places we think are most unlikely. I've kind of come to believe that one of the reasons that we keep that wall between us and the other is that we don't want to or we simply can't see Jesus in the face of the other. But it was Jesus' act of love on a cross that destroyed the wall. It's his blood that makes us brothers and sisters. One family. One church. You've heard that blood is thicker than water. In other words, you know, you always take care of your family, but not necessarily those other guys. But it's the blood of Christ that has forgiven us, and given us life and made us part of his family. So in a very real way, we are brothers and sisters related by blood. We are brothers and sisters. We are related by blood. One church has made a commitment commitment to God to live out the reality that that wall of hostility between people has been broken down once and for all. Doesn't matter because it doesn't matter who walks in the door, whether what race you are, what nationality you are, what, what gender you are, what age you are, what physical, what you look like physically because we're all different shapes and heights and whatever. You know, we're all a little strange, aren't we? You know, I'm, I'm probably the oldest one here, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we got that one straight. <laughs> My doctor says 65 and over is elderly. I've been there a while. <laughs> and don't believe it, I'm not. <laughs> oh, I hate those labels. But even elderly can come in here, right? Yes, <laughs> Watching you all grow together as one church is really a joy for me. Seeing the kingdom of God being built together is an act of God. It is a miracle because it's not happening out there for, any, for a lot of places. So count yourselves blessed to be able to see God at work in bringing people who are very different backgrounds and everything else and make you a family, one church, brothers and sisters in reality.
Watching you grow is fun for me. And I'm going to be back, you know, I'm checking up on you. Because I got to check on Jamel and Matt all the time. I got to tell you, I, you know. I was on the interview team that interviewed Matt for his license. So, you know. And we said he was okay. <laughs> Poor guy. As every week, you come to the table, to the Lord's table. And we come to this table, this table of grace, having been invited by Jesus Christ. We come thanking God for his sacrificial love demonstrated on a cross. We come remembering that the bread is the body of Christ broken for us. We come remembering that the cup we share is the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We come because we really want to see Jesus in the face of one another. And so by God's grace, we come to the table. And by God's grace, we will all sit together at God's table of grace in his kingdom that is to come. And like Mephibosheth, by grace, we will always eat at the king's table. I want to pray a prayer for you, and, and the first part of this prayer is a, a prayer that was in a book by a, a man from Africa. It's a little bit of what it means to be the family of God. Let's pray. Lord, you asked for my hands that you might use them for your purpose. I gave them for a moment and then withdrew them, for the work was hard. You asked for my mouth to speak out against injustice, and I gave you a whisper that I might not be accused. You asked for my eyes to see the pain and the shame and poverty, and I closed them for I did not want to see. You asked for my life that you might work through me, and I gave you a small part that I might not get too involved. Lord, forgive me for my calculated efforts to serve you only when it's convenient for me to do so. Only in those places where it is safe to do so. And only with those who make it easy to do so. Father, forgive me. Forgive us. Renew us. Send us out as usable instruments that we might take seriously the meaning of your cross. So Lord, as we come to the table, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the bread and the cup that represent your love, your sacrifice for us. Use this holy meal to help us grow and see you 
in the eyes of one another. For Jesus' sake.